Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. Santosh, I learned something very important today. Mm. You should never reach your hand into the sink garbage disposal when your child is close to the switch. Is that what that sound is in the background? <laughs> oh, that's I've learned, what you catch. I've learned two valuable lessons today. <laughs> that is actually a rescue helicopter landing on top of my hospital right now. Because you put so. your hand in a ditch. Wow, Santos. Yeah. <laughs> Way to escalate. They, they care about me. What can I say? Oh <laughs> uh, no, I was it was supposed it was supposed to be for a baby, but they were like <laughs> supposed to be Sorry. for a baby, and it was just a big one. Oh boo. Womp womp. Uh, no, I was referring to the fact that Hugh Grant's middle name is Mungo. Somebody held, yeah. somebody held a tiny British baby in their arms and said, this is my baby, Hugh Mungo Grant. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah that's... and when I told this to you, you doubted me. So all, all our home listeners can look it up along with you. I gave you a link to Snopes. Is it true? Is is Hugh Grant's middle name Mungo Santosh? <laughs> His name, full name, is Hugh John Mungo Grant. Huge Mungo. <laughs> Huge Mungo. <laughs> yes. And, and the way that they quoted him saying it 
like legally, officially, was his transcript from his court date <laughs> from a couple of years back. It's all available on the interweb yeah. forever. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Nothing you do goes unseen. Thank you, Internet. Luckily, that includes science. And this week... I found a few other things. Oh, the segue was so hard. <laughs> Luckily, uh, you're going to find out some similar surprises or things you didn't expect in this week's episode, which is a long-delayed alternate week. And do you know what that means, Santosh? It might be one of our viewers' favorite bi-weekly segment. Viewers? Listeners, whatever <laughs> organ you're using to interact with us, <laughs> it's time for another. I speak to a bunch of synesthetes all day. <laughs> so as you may have guessed, it's time for everybody's favorite journal club. Yay! Woo! And this week, the very loose theme around which our, our stories are grouped is unexpected mm-hmm and surprising discoveries. And and some of them are bringing uh, these discoveries like pretty soon to humans. And some of them are a little bit far behind, but definitely they kind of came out of left field. So the first one begins with a different surprise. Santosh, I don't know if you noticed uh, amongst your patients, but we really had almost no flu season this last year. I was delighted And it's a combination of factors. Well, first of all, I actually knew this was coming. And I'll tell you, I I don't know if we had discussed it on this podcast, but it was because we have a crystal ball in terms of the flu season every year. Satosh, you're not supposed to talk about the crystal ball to the science audience. (laughs) No, we do. We have a beautiful oracle for the flu season in the Northern Hemisphere, and that that crystal ball is Australia. And Australia is... Is that like the, a magic eight ball? You turn it upside down and see what happens? <laughs> is today going to... Is this flu season going to be a light one? Check back oh. later, mate. Oh, yeah, yeah. Also, all signs point to yes. I don't, I don't know what accent that was. That was a weird... Influenza. Australian for beer. <laughs> Okay. All right. So, <laughs> now that we've insulted an entire continent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For real, though, the flu strains which are incorporated into vaccines for a given season are actually the ones that start in the southern hemisphere uh, during the months that we usually have summer, Josh. So between March all the way out to September, they have their flu season. And at the very beginning of that, we get a sampling from there, uh, usually like Queensland or Victoria, um, and then also from Singapore and Taiwan. We usually get sampling of flu strains and come up with a consensus vaccine strain. But the point was this year, when we looked at Australia's flu season in the summertime of 2020, before it got to the Northern Hemisphere, they had no flu. They had no influenza going on. And it was probably because COVID is much more infectious than flu. We were trying to prevent COVID. So we were doing all these restrictions, like not touching each other and keeping our mask and staying away. 
Influenza will pass on as a droplet. You can cough it, sneeze it, and it'll float in the air and then, you know, get on your mucous membranes. But much more commonly, it's passed by contact, meaning that you wipe your nose or something and then you shake hands with someone and they touch their face. And that's why it propagates much more heavily through kids. So given that we were just not touching each other, Dash, <laughs> flu did not propagate this year. There has been next to no cases. And we certainly didn't have the pandemic rise and fall like we usually do every season. And this flu season's over. That didn't stop all the regular employees of influenza from doing their jobs. And interestingly, one of the new influenza vaccines of the most recent year showed signs of protection, not only against the anticipated or projected strain, but about a dozen plus flu strains uh, including some of the swine flu strains that drove earlier pandemics in 2009 and, of course, 1918, which does mm. hint at the promise of a universal flu vaccine. So when I say universal, Santos, what am I referring to? Or what, what's the concept I'm putting forward? Flu is a weird respiratory virus. It doesn't have this ability to just kind of stabilize and be the same virus for a long period of time with small mutations. It's got two little arms on it, two little spikes. Actually, it's got a bunch of them, but you know, you can think of them as two little spikes that help infect you. One is called HA or hemagglutinin. And the other one is called NA or neurominidase. And that's how you get the HN designations, right? H1N1, H3N2, that kind of thing. The fact that it has these two little arms and the fact that those two little arms are very variable means that from season to season, the flu looks quite different to our immune system. And that is why we have to engineer a vaccine made up of several types of the like that year's pandemic flu strain. So maybe a couple of A's, a B, you know, and then H1N1 is always included. Now the pandemic strain is given um, every year as a boost because we know it can still circulate. In total, we have to manufacture that flu strain for that given year every single time because of this phenomenon. And the technical terms are genetic shift and genetic drift. And that's how we get these big changes in influenza and why we need a new vaccine every time. A scientist by the name of Dr. Eric Weaver looked at the idea that every year the flu is constantly changing what it wears, like a funny mustache and glasses or a different hat or Hawaiian shirt. And he put together a computer program that is called Epigraph with the Epi short for epitope. That's the bit of protein like the hemagglutin and uh, Santosh mentioned that draws the attention of the immune system. So he said, look at every single mutational variant, every single version of hemagglutin that exists. And then once you've cataloged all of them, look at which ones have the broadest immunity the greatest diversity against the range of strains. And he found a nine amino acid sequence that pretty much covers the entire catalog of pig flus. This was his first experiments to actually aim for swine flus. Flus actually affect many different types of animals. You have avian flus, swine flus, human flus. Usually they stick to their own species, but sometimes they jump. 
And that's what scares us. But this was the what we call the model animal that he was using to check out whether his idea would work in pigs. And then when they found one that covered all those wide varieties against pigs, he did he repeated the experiment with mice. And they tested the vaccine against 20 strains of swine-derived H3 flu. So a flu that had already jumped across species, looking for, again, what are the what's going to cover the broadest range for pigs and mice. So he's really kind of running it through almost a funnel. The cellular level responses appear to scale up. And when challenged with flu viruses, all these vaccinated mice who got the humongo vaccine, see, I told you I would come back to that. Gen- the love of God. <laughs> and the mice were challenged with a lethal H3 strain that was derived from humans. Only the ones who received this composite vaccine were protected. So as this becomes more and more generalizable, he'll have to do larger and different experiments, whether they can test immunity in pigs outside the sterile confines of a lab. But this vaccine cocktail may actually give you a once a year covers every possible version of the flu vaccine. So this is really cool. And universal flu vaccine, single flu vaccines that can cover, you know, all the range of influences that are out there is kind of a holy grail for immunologists. This is one of many, many strategies that are out there right now, Josh. There are others who, so when our immune system recognizes the flu, it, you know, you, I told you like it has those two arms, like those two antenna, like a hemagglutinin and a, and a neuraminidase. Usually our immune system recognizes the very ends of those. Um, so the, the actual tip that um, then latches on to our cells and allows it the, the flu vaccine to actually get in the cell and replicate or cause damage. <clears throat> but there is this approach to actually, instead of trying to get those epitopes right at the very end, to actually get the stalk and, and actually find an epitope there that's more immunogenic. You know, Josh, with COVID and everything, we may find that we'll use this data, like the epitope data that uh, Dr. Weaver is working on and actually move to something like an mRNA vaccine, which worked beautifully with, uh, with COVID. So I think we're going to see a, a big, you know, kind of growth in, in the types of vaccines that we're seeing soon. And I would love it, Josh, if we didn't get this horrible seasonal flu every year, because we forget, you know, when COVID came through that how devastating influenza is around the world. Well, humanity has short memories. This is certainly a huge pandemic, but it is not the only one we've seen within our lifetimes or even within the last decade. Moving on to our next story, Parkinson's disease affects quite a lot of people. And unfortunately, it's one of the many brain-related diseases that doesn't have a cure and really only has symptomatic management. But... Japanese researchers have discovered that a chemical called sesaminol from sesame seeds uh, has some possible protective and preventive effects against Parkinson's. And they tested this in mice who saw an increase in both dopamine levels and motor performance. For those of you guys who don't know, uh, you can make animal models of a lot of different types of disease. So we have models for Alzheimer's. And this particular model for Parkinson's, you 
it's kind of sad, but the mice are kind of genetically engineered to be very highly prone to developing Parkinson's as they age, as they kind of grow up. So it's neat to be able to use that kind of a neurological model and test solutions like this one on it. Um, it's preliminary. It's, you know, new in vitro and then in mice. It's, you know, it's not quite ready for prime time with humans. But, uh, yeah, the results were pretty promising. Yeah. So it did. It protected against neuronal damage by promoting the translocation. And the only reason I'm bringing up genetics on this level is so I can say the name of my one of my favorite genes, Nrf2. It's a protein involved in the response to oxidative stress and reducing the production of essentially stress. So what's less stressful than Nrf? So many things. Really? Were you not a Nrf kid? <laughs> was, but I was also the one who would get cornered and pegged with about 250 soft darts. Yeah, that was me release, releasing my oxidative stress. The gross. Well, in either case, uh, experiments in live mice or in vivo showed equally promising results. So not just an increase in Nrf, but the impairment of movement, like the slow moving features you see in Parkinson's are the result of damaged neurons producing less dopamine. But might my, my, but mice that had this sesame seed diet for over a month actually saw an increase in dopamine levels. Now, again, we don't know quite the mechanism by which it caused that increase in dopamine. Was it by preventing reuptake, increasing production? Who knows? The point being, you now have something that again, can further delay the onset of Parkinson's disease. Yeah. From my standpoint, as you know, re a cell biologist and actually examining the signaling pathways that uh, lead to oxidative stress and, you know, the destruction of a neuron, it was really cool to specifically see where sesaminol uh, interjected itself um, in terms of preventing the translocation of a specific protein. So from the standpoint of me being a cell biologist and actually seeing the cell signaling that's going on here, uh, the fact that sesaminol specifically was able to uh, target this NRF2, this NRF2 protein, to actually translocate into the nucleus, bind to a specific stretch of uh, DNA, which then, you know, the 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 DNA then transcribed these antioxidant enzymes and actually built up levels of these enzymes, which broke down uh, reactive oxygen species. That's really cool that they were able to find the molecular target for sesaminol. So not just to see kind of like a, a, a big picture idea of, you know, what the mouse's behavior was and what the cells looked like in the brain, when they examined it under the microscope, but actually to find the reason, the, the underlying uh, mechanism of how this works. I'm looking forward to seeing where this can go forward. Um, and yeah, this comes from just sesame seeds, sesaminol. <laughs> oh, that does not mean that you can just go and eat a sesame seed and, you know, whatever. But it does mean, like many, many, many of our drugs that we found, that the derivation of a natural product may in fact lead to some cool drug discovery specifically targeting 
you know, this disease, Parkinson's. Moving on to another example of a mouse model being used for a fun discovery, some researchers have discovered a factor that triggers muscle stem cells to heal. Now, while the article itself is fascinating, I specifically came across it during a Google search for cuddly macrophages. Don't judge me and don't question. Just accept it. We're all going to roll with this. I think I knew what you were looking for. I mean, I myself have a um, a little row right here on my desk of cuddly little uh, microbes. We call them mighty microbes. They're little plush toys, um, you know, which are uh, representations of like, here's my toxoplasma and here's a little gonorrhea. Is that the same thing? You're trying to find the cells, the little plushies? Let's say yes. Researchers at the Australian Re- <laughs> um, researchers at the Australian Regenerative Medicine Institute at Monash University, led by Professor Wolverine, have discovered a factor that triggers muscle stem cells to proliferate and heal. I did, in fact, make up the name of that researcher. Please be assured we'll give proper credit. In a mouse model yeah, of se- Dr. Peter Curry. <laughs> it's a much less impressive mutant name uh but using a mouse model of severe muscle damage injections of this protein they found led to the complete regeneration of muscle and the return of normal movement after severe trauma which good job regenerative medicine institute on uh working in your field um so Traditionally, growing these stem cells in the lab and then using them to replace damaged tissue has been difficult. Uh, And that's for a lot of reasons. Growing stem cells on a large scale can be very tricky, and getting multiple stem cells to follow the specific pathway you want is still something that, while some folks out there may understand, I certainly don't and therefore can't explain. How about you, Satoshi? (laughs) I'm not ashamed to admit when I don't know something. No, no, no. (laughs) So... There are some cases where this is much easier. For instance, if you're trying to put... So hematopoietic stem cells are not... They don't write dirty limericks. They they create blood cells. So by and large, in, in an adult human, they're found in bone marrow. Now, these seem to be very, very good that if you harvest the, the hematopoietic stem cells, you donate them. We're learning better and better in a very good way how to get those stem cells to sit in someone's bone marrow, grow up. It's not 100%, but you can do a bone marrow transplant. And those stem cells, Josh, they know where to go. They know how to get to the bone marrow. They can do it by themselves. You can give it just like as a transfusion in the blood. You don't have to like stick it in the bone. But if you start out with stem cells for something like the heart or muscle, Now, the cells can't just go and migrate kind of wherever they want to and sit. They have to be arranged in a very select pattern, especially in the heart. Those muscle fibers have to lay in exactly the right way and interact with the nervous tissue so that when the action potential, that's the the actual heartbeat, the electrical wave goes over the heart, that electrical wave moves in a very coordinated, exact direction from the top down to the apex, and you get contraction in a coordinated manner. If you don't do it that way, you'll have plenty of muscle. 
but it'll be disorganized. Um, it, it might there might even be fibrosis, like scarring, and you will end up doing more harm to the patient than good. So, and in a lot of, of these tissues, and one of the ways we learned look- about all the different, and one of the ways we learned about all the different muscle actions that can be taken, were by studying regeneration of muscles in animals or models like zebrafish, which are neat because they. Zebrafish! Because they have transparent skin, which allows scientists <laughs> to witness regeneration in living muscles. So essentially, by studying cells that migrate to a muscle injury in these fish, they were able to identify a group of specific immune cells that could have a role in triggering the cells to regenerate. So essentially, they said, oh, every time you get hurt, Let's look at all the cells that show up to the party to work on repairs and see if anything Mm -hmm. has some special features or functions. And what they saw were macrophages literally cuddling the muscle stem cells, which then started to divide and proliferate and regenerate. And once that cell began to do this, the macrophage would let go of its little hug, move on and cuddle the next cell, and pretty soon the wounds (laughs) would heal. (laughs) this is so cool yeah zebrafish zebrafish embryos and then zebrafish as they grow older have long long been a fantastic model for peripheral nerve and muscle cell uh, 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 kind of examination it's it's such a cool thing that you can just hold up these things almost like to the light. <laughs> you can just see what you want to see. But this was really neat, Josh. You had an immune cell guiding the maturation and the orientation, actually, in space of a progenitor stem cell, stem cell in order to repair a bridge rather than creating like a scar, now, like a fibrotic scar. I don't know if, you know, you're your training took you a bit further in this, but from my studies, I really only kind of thought of macrophages as being a single thing. It removes debris. It can promote some healing, but it's really there to just cookie monster its way around cleaning things up. (laughs) But it turns out, at least in zebrafish, there are eight genetically different types of macrophages. And Mm -hmm. one specific type is the cuddler. And further investigation reveals that the cuddler macrophage released a substance called NAMPT. Interestingly, the scientists then started just adding NAMPT to the aquarium water and found they could stimulate the muscle stem cells to grow and heal, replacing the need for macrophages and honestly, injury at all. So you can just promote Arnold Schwarzenegger zebrafish by adding yeah. all no it's that's not how this works at all but it no, does promote no. healing of wounded cells with this same chemical or signal that the cuddly macrophage releases there was a little bit of a surprise for me here because that NAMPT that little molecule actually acted through CCR5 uh chemokine receptor Eden's Clearwater which- Revival 5 no, stop it. No, it's not. It's not Credence Clearwater's Fifth Revival. No. CCR5. It's really interesting because that molecule is what we usually think of as, you know, when, when the chemokine receptor is sitting there to, you know, receive a chemokine 
you usually think of that as an immune signal, you know, to go and fight and actually get inflamed or go towards wherever your your battle is, where your bacteria is. I never really thought of it as a a binding receptor that would, you know, signal healing or regeneration or, you know, differentiation of a growth of a stem cell. So just think the next time you fall down and get a scrape or hurt yourself that your macrophages are giving you hugs from the inside and promote and promoting you to heal. <laughs> yeah, and that's why it itches like mad. Yes, all those no, little no, macrophage no. hugs. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm I'm excited about this. It is really, really tough to get certain types of stem cells to sit, regenerate, especially exactly where you want them to. This is a cool first step that could lead to, for instance, if you really rip tear a muscle in a trauma, that you could actually repair that muscle using stem cells and maybe even this chemokine signaling and this NAMP signaling without creating a scar that then wouldn't move and cause disability. Well, now that we've covered another possible method of Wolverine-style healing, it did get me thinking, as I continue to research for this year's comic book medicine episode, about what other superpowers would be cool. And I feel like I'd like a Spidey sense. And while that has very little to do with our next story, uh, spiders are involved, as are nerves. So there you go. Uh, A new study has found (laughs) that spider silk is as effective in promoting tissue regeneration as nerve grafts or as the nerves already located in a patient's own body. By using spider silk, essentially, it can be used to extend nerve gaps or injuries, extending up to three centimeters, which is a huge amount of space for a nerve to take up. And the reason is they concluded the regeneration of axons supported by the implant or the spider silk was comparable to that in an autologous nerve graft, which is the gold standard where you take one of the patient's nerves from somewhere in their own body outside of the brain and you transplant it wherever, um, suggesting that a biomaterial-based spider silk nerve conduit could be transplanted and promote nerve regeneration in lots of injuries, in muscles and presumably in brain, but essentially you can fill your body with spider webs and they'll work almost as well as neurons. No, no, no. Right? Right? That's the takeaway. No. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) How much longer am I cursed to do this? (laughs) Seven years so far. (laughs) I just like deconstruct the last 15 seconds. (laughs) <laughs> some poor child you know running after hearing our you say this in the podcast is like i'm gonna go put spider web on my cut <laughs> listen if there are people walking through spider webs who freak out i'm not say, i'm not naming names but they're out there and now <laughs> and now they think oh hey this is the same material that can be used in you know as an autologous graft or can be used in Mm. place of a graft for a nerve injury. I should save this. Maybe bring it to my local clinic. (laughs) But fine. Okay, Mr. Okay, Dr. Killjoy, why don't you tell us what the actual significance (laughs) of the article is? Uh, All right. All right. 
So uh, you have a peripheral nerve, right? So you've got the nerve going from so your nerves spinal cord. outside of the brain and spinal cord are peripheral nerves. Outside peripheral nerves, right? So you've got your spinal cord. In your spinal cord, there is a nerve body. Okay, that's the the bulbous center part of the nerve, which cats carries all the nucleus and everything. Else. And then it fires off, it shoots off an axon. Okay. That's a long jellyfish like arm. Okay. Now, sorry, now, I'm going to interrupt you. Nerve... I want to interrupt briefly Santosh to just point out before you get oh, yeah. too deep into this, that as we're yeah. talking about peripheral nerves, the difference between peripheral and central nerves, one central nerves are brain and spinal cord. Peripheral nerves are outside of that system, but importantly, Peripheral nerve injuries require replacement because cells outside of the brain and spinal cord do not regenerate. In fact, the uh, the neurons in the CNS, the central nervous system itself, also notoriously hard to regenerate those. You, you get a cut on a nerve. Now, in some cases, if it's just a little slice, right, if, if there's not a lot of gap in between, you can do microsurgery, you can get that nerve to, you know, line up, and you can get those axons to use the scaffolding of the outside part, the, the sheath of the nerve, to actually grow along those areas and regrow. It won't be perfect, and a lot of the time you need to rehab it to get the, um, the sensation and the motor function back. But in those proximate cuts, when they're really close together, you can you can actually put the two ends of the nerves together. And you can't. If you have a gap, if you have a big gap in the middle, though, the nerve doesn't have anywhere to see, oh, this is where I'm supposed to grow, this axon. But it can. Now, what they're doing here is they're laying down the spider silk as that conduit, that, that the little pipeline that can tell the, the nerve axons to grow in this direction. You can bridge the gap, and then the axon of the nerve will grow along it, okay, and will heal, reconnect with the distal part, the part that's downstream, okay, start sending signals, and now you can actually heal it up, Uh it's really, really neat. Josh, the biggest part of this is that the silk is very fine, very strong, and it's biocompatible, meaning that by and large, it's not going to be like a piece of plastic that's going to like, you know, cause an ulcer, you know, or provoke an immune response. But not only is it biocompatible, but previous studies Mm -hmm. conducted by researcher Radke, uh, by who is a professor at the Department of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery at the Medical School of Vienna, had already found that spider silk itself as a material enhances the migration of Schwann cells, which are the cells in your nervous system or the cells that help to create that protective sheath around your axons. So it really acts as almost in the same way that your own body's nerve would drawing those same kinds of cells into repair. And they've tested this process and demonstrated it in axons longer than some in the human body. For example, a six centimeter long tibial nerve model in a sheet. Um, So the nerve regeneration improvement showed a need for scientists to explore clinical implications, including reconstructive nerve surgery. So even though spider silk is well-known to be a bio, is, as a well-known, well-studied biomaterial, uh, data regarding 
how well it degrades in an in vivo or experimental setting is rare. So this is one of those exceptions to the rule. This study of using it as a nerve graft bridge is one of the few examples we can see of how is this going to work as a biomaterial in us walking around. I'm excited about this. Of everything that we've talked about so far, I think this is the one that would be closest for like prime time use to give it a try in human beings, uh, meaning that it, it probably has the highest chance of uh, success to do what we want it to do with a, a minimum of a safety concern. Yeah, so this is a pretty recent study, and they still have a lot of work left to do, but they do know that it acts in ways that other materials, biomaterials don't. And because of its tensile strength, it can help bridge longer gaps than traditional surgical techniques have allowed thus far. There's a whole lot more to do. Sometimes the cell itself dies and then it can't shoot off an axon. We've got to do that. That's, you know, a lot of the time, Josh, in, in you know, if you get a, a severing of your uh, spinal cord, you know, that's, you know, you, you actually lose the, the cells themselves. We learn to regenerate that. But in this case, in cases like this, if you imagine someone goes through a trauma, you know, they've got severed arm, severed leg, you're trying to reconnect it, regenerate it. You can put some spider in them, Josh. You can put some spider silk in and then they'll be like, you know, hybrid human being you know, with the spider un until the silk actually degrades and then, you know, the nerve replaces the thing, well, it's you know, for a little while, they can be spider men or spider women. So just keep in mind, if you get one of those spider silk nerve, uh, nerve sutures with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> that's, that's what they said, uncle Ben. Or, or wait, okay, you're right. I don't want to get that copyright. So with great power comes Hugh Mungo Grant responsibility. Yeah, <laughs> that'll show them. <laughs> that, that was it right there, Josh. Up until that point, Mickey was just like, he was that, just that coming. protected us from lawsuits. Free. He's going to be yeah, like, well. He, he just turned around and he was like, oh, I, I heard that weird copyright protection that Dr. Josh threw up. I guess I'll go back. That's just a huge, huge go protection. Last minute idea. <laughs> but that's it. Oh, I love it. That's it for yeah. this week's Journal Club. As always, we <laughs> love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. <laughs> this show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. <laughs> if you'd like to <laughs> if you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to several of the sources <laughs> used in research in this show. Please feel free to rate and review us. That's cool. Give us huge Among ratings. Um, <laughs> our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. <laughs> and until next time, as always, <laughs> stay safe. Wash your hands, wear a mask, get your shot. And when all that is done, if you have somewhere to go and a country that'll take you, happy travels. Humongo! <laughs>
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.